Hey y'all, I'm Casey Bell from the Shake Up Learning Show, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with David Price, OBE. He is a global thought leader, learning futurist, and the author of the book, The Power of Us, How We Connect, Act, and Innovate Together. Lots to learn today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. David Price, OBE, is a global thought leader, learning futurist, and author, specializing in how organizations learn, innovate, and make themselves fit for the future. He is a highly sought-after public speaker, entertaining and educating audiences around the world in business, education, and the public sector. He is the author of two books, Open, How We'll Work, Live, and Learn in the Future, and his most recent book, The Power of Us, How We Connect, Act, and Innovate Together. David is also a highly experienced trainer, having spent 20 years running workshops and masterclasses in people development, organizational learning, innovation strategies, as well as a host of training events for schools, colleges, and universities. In 2009, he was awarded the OBE for Services to Education by Her Majesty the Queen. He consults and advises corporations, governments, and education leaders on preparing for future shifts in work, leisure, and the digitally connected world. He is passionate about helping people fulfill their true potential, most notably by tackling the global epidemic of disengagement in the workplace and in formal education. As a former professional musician and a native of Jaro in the northeast of England, David is used to traveling to find work, spending two-thirds of the year on the road. When he isn't moving, he's also found in Leeds in the UK. David, welcome to the show. Great to have you here, and thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Hi, Steve, and thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you here, and I, you know, I, I eliminated this question when I put the questions together, so forgive me if you don't want to answer it. Go right ahead. But so you were a professional musician. What did you play? I played uh, piano and guitar. And um, I started when I was about 17. Uh, and in, that, in those days, it was the whole folk, you know, the protest movement and folk clubs were kind of in the ascendancy. So that's, that's kind of where I started, really. And I did it for about 15 years. Very cool. Very cool. I, when I went through and I was doing my questions and all that, that, that one got cut. And I was like, oh, I got to ask him. I can't, I can't let this go. So I am happy to talk about it. Very cool. So, uh, and one other, one thing I got to make sure I also ask, um, you know, before we get talking about the power of us, let's start with you talking about the OBE recognition by the queen of England. Could you explain the award recognition, why you received it and what you were, and what you were thinking when you were actually receiving the recognition? Cause I've seen the picture of you being pinned by the queen. So you got to talk about that. Okay, well, you, you forgive me, there's a bit of a story attached to it, but, but uh, this is just for your benefit, obviously, on the Zoom, but yeah, I, we found this today, and it's actually the medal that the, the Queen kind of pins on you. Beautiful. Um, and the only reason we found it is we've, we've moved house, we've been here two years, and we're still taking stuff out of boxes, and I, I thought I'd lost it, to be honest, um, but my wife said, no, no, look, here it is. As to what it is, to be really frank, I'm not sure. I still get confused myself. Is it an officer of the British Empire? In which case, I'm least likely officer material. 
or sometimes people refer to it as the order of the British Empire, but it, there's a kind of pecking order of recognition. And, you know, it starts at the top with knighthood. Uh, so you've got sir, and then you've got a companion or commander of the British. It's, I don't, it's one of those antiquities. But the, to, to answer your question, what was I thinking at the time? I was thinking, what did he just say? <laughs> this is the, the God's honest truth, Stephen, because I, they give you this briefing before you go down to, to kind of get your, your award. And they do it in the Queen's private art gallery. And there's a guy dressed up in full military uh, regalia, a Lord Lieutenant of some sort. And he's explaining how you do, you know, and I'm thinking in my usual slightly lax way, how hard can it be? You just walk up, you shake hands, you know, you have a little bit of chit chat and then you go away. But, and, and I was, I was severely distracted by the Canalettos and the Titians and the Rembrandts up on the wall. I'm thinking, wow, this is amazing. But I kind of overheard this conversation about don't turn your back on it. There's a kind of protocol, but I, you know, I didn't listen closely enough. So the moment comes, I'm thinking, what, what did he say? Do I turn my back on it or do I not turn my back? Anyway, we had the 30 second conversation. You know, she says to me, what did you get it for? And I said, I, I don't know. I thought you might know, <laughs> which was perhaps a little bit too familiar with the queen. But, but then she gives you, you know, there's this famous slight push away with the hand when she shakes your hand. And I immediately turned my back. And at that point, I thought, no, I'm not supposed to do that. So I turned back round. And then I thought, now I can turn my back. But by then, I'd fallen off this dais, which is about six inches high. And to the absolute horror of my wife and two sons who were in the front row. And about three weeks after that, there was an announcement from the palace that this long-standing protocol of not turning your back on the Queen had been um, abandoned. And I'm sure the two events were not in any way connected. <laughs> he got sick of people kind of walking this half dance where you fall and you think, when do I turn my back? It's bizarre. <laughs> the whole thing was bizarre. <laughs> well, congratulations on your recognition because that's really cool. And, and you know, when I was, because I, I did some looking into it. That's a, it's awesome. Like you said, it has these levels and, uh, and I saw where that uh, um, is the... Uh, Officer of the British Empire is basically what it stands for, and and uh, and that there's there's like two other levels, and like you said, then there's knight and all that other stuff. And cool. it, I should say though, Steve, it comes with zero perks. I think the only perk is there's a tiny little chapel um, in in Westminster where you can, if you choose, get married there. But like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> that happened ten years ago. So, <laughs> hey. Well, congratulations on that recognition. That's really cool, and uh, and that's uh, and I appreciate you sharing what you're thinking because I could I could imagine the same thing. I'd be thinking, he just gave me instructions. What did he say? Exactly. <laughs> oh, she's right here. <laughs> so, it's all being captured on video. They hand you this video where they've kind of put together the highlights of your particular day. Very slick operation and so whenever my wife wants to humiliate me in front of family and friends we put the video on nice <laughs> you, you still though can come back with well i've got one and you don't so <laughs> that is true so so david and let, let's start talking about the power of us your your book is uh the power of us how we connect act and innovate together and in the introduction you say this 
I have consciously sought out organizations and people that exemplify open innovation, great employee engagement, self-determined learners, and the rest, because I believe that maximizing the power of us is good for business, good for society, and good for the planet. And because I'm looking for behaviors, values, and strategies that we can all learn from, I've focused upon their commonalities rather than their differences. And believe me, they have plenty of differences. Could you put this statement in context for your book to lay it out for the potential buyers? Yep. Well, I, I, the, the previous book opened, I um, kind of shared examples from both the commercial world and the education world because it was about how organizations learn. Um, and people would say to me, I think that's two separate books, but the, the, the commonalities are so striking. And I chose to look at a whole range of organizations, everything from you know, WD-40 in the commercial world, craft breweries, uh, NGOs and uh, cooperatives, as well as schools and colleges. Um, and at the, at the kind of realization, I spent three years going around speaking to these leaders and trying to get under the skin of how is it that they've created this incredible culture of, I'd call it ingenuity rather than innovation, because they are, they are kind of solving problems constantly. And it seemed to me that uh, there are a number of qualities that they've, they've built into the, the DNA. And the striking realization, I think I was in a bar somewhere in, in the US, and I suddenly realized that these eight characteristics, and I'll just quickly go through them, it's trust and transparency, engagement and equity, autonomy and agency, and mastery and meaning. These eight um, qualities or characteristics have been either in decline or have become absent in our more general civic society. Uh, and it's so it's little wonder that the, the organizations that are really successful and attract people, attract talent who want to work there, are, are putting uh, a high priority on those eight characteristics. And sure, they're different in terms of how they go about doing that. But those, those eight commonalities were there in, in all of those organizations that are studied. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's, it's cool when you start seeing uh, patterns, I guess. Mm. It'd be rather eye-opening. You introduce the readers to what you call people-powered innovation. Can you talk about what that is? Sure. The, the, the overall concept of the book is that, I suppose the message that I'm trying to say is that for too long now, and I don't care whether you're a school or a college or you know, a Fortune 500 company, for too long, we've had this notion of innovation, of having good ideas as, as being a, a trickle-down kind of thing. You know, the leaders have the ideas and then it trickles down to the people who have to kind of realize them and make them happen. And I don't think that's sustainable anymore, particularly, you know, since we've, we've seen these changes in the knowledge economy. And in order to attract uh, millennials now, I think organizations have got to create the kind of, environment where you feel if you've got an idea it will be heard and so for me the challenge was can you can you create a culture whereby anyone can have a good idea and have it equally valued i spent a lot of time probably a good chunk of the last 10 years being asked to go into organizations both in the education sector and outside of it and and people would say our our people aren't really very innovative could you could you help them 
be a bit more creative. You know, and sure, you can do the workshops, you know, and you finish the session and the walls are full of post-it notes. But I realized that it was the, the culture of the organizations that, that was holding this back. So what I argue in the book is that we've seen this explosion and we saw it before COVID happened, but, but COVID's really illuminated and accelerated it of what I call people-powered innovation. And I, I kind of classify that into three forms. There's, there's people who advocate for new products and services. So they don't actually make them themselves, but they kind of kick up the fuss. Uh, there are people who hack existing products and services to better suit their needs. And then there are those people who, who create a pro new product or service from scratch. And what we've seen in the last 10 to 15 years is that because of um, the, the social learning which has taken place and the incredible global networks, particularly amongst our young people that are springing up, these, these organizations have been so much more effective, these grassroots innovation have, have, have actually worked in ways that we probably didn't see before. And, and one of the examples I cited in the book was, was the ACT UP movement in New York, you know, which was a long time, it's certainly pre-internet, where they were kind of saying, you know, HIV AIDS is this epidemic which is out of control and we're not going to wait. We need to get some, you know, what, what turned out to be the, the um, retroviral drugs. And without those people uh, who, who organized a really smart, innovative campaign, I don't think we'd have seen that kind of acceleration of the development. And that, it seems to me now, is only happening quicker. If we look at, you know, Greta Thunberg and what she's done in terms of the climate emergency, those kids from Parklands, Florida, who organized the March for Life, you know, so that activism is one part of it. But equally, I think in, in the creation of new products and services, and I include education initiatives within this, we need to consult with the users. We need to, to see them as co-creators, not the recipients of these products and services. I love it. Love it. That's, uh, that's, that's powerful. Uh, and, it, and what you talk about is that in order to... Uh, uh, something that's important to shaping these organizations is mindset. They have, you know, can you talk a little bit about why mindset is so important in shaping organizations through people powered in innovation? Yeah. Well, I think the phrase I use in the book is, is mindset beats skill set. You know, the idea used to be that you got together people with the right kinds of skills and, and then somehow you'd, you'd work on getting the right kind of corporate attitude what I discovered is that if you've got the right kind of mindset, the, the skill set is less important. And one of the people that I interviewed was Andrea Coleman. She's a septuagenarian. She's in her 70s now. She established an organization called Riders for Health, which is an NGO, and it operates out of Africa. And, and it sees its job as to get people in remote villages access to health care. Now, she was passionate about motorcycles. So it ended up being a motorcycle-based organization, you know, and they ferry samples around the country or they, they take um, medics out to far-flung places. If, if, if Andrea had been a chemist, she probably would have been working on, you know, a vaccine or she would have, it, it wouldn't, whatever skill set she had wouldn't have mattered so much as the mindset. And she described it really well when she talked about these kind of 
social entrepreneurs, she said, I think we're unreasonable. You know, I, I think we look at situations and say, this isn't good enough. We can do better than that. And that, that was also a, a something else that I saw frequently in terms of the leadership of these organizations. There's a kind of rebellious streak in them and there's a restlessness there, which, which I think is, is all to the good, really. So, David, let's, let's get into this. You, you, uh, could you say a little bit about open learning equals open innovation? Yeah, I think what we've um, seen, uh, and certainly social media has played a huge role in this, but there's been this growth of um, open source ideas which have fueled innovation. So, um, you know, the, the, the tech sector has kind of driven that, I guess. But it has meant now that I think people are seeing the, the fastest way, and, and COVID was a great example of this, because it was when the Chinese made the genetic code of the virus open source and just available to anyone, that's when it really accelerated the development of the vaccine. So it, I think it's generally accepted that open innovation accelerates new ideas. For me, the how do you get to that culture of open innovation? I think you also have to have a culture of open learning, which means that organizations have to look outwards. They have to recognize that they can learn from their users. They can learn from uh, their the communities. And I, I say this with particular reference to schools because often schools can be quite isolated and, and, and insular. And I think we, we have a lot to learn about becoming more porous kind of organizations. And that, that's really when I, I've, I think innovation starts to happen, when you are willing to take ideas and learn. John Hegel uh, put it this way. He said, we've seen this general shift in the past 10 years from what were called scalable efficiencies. You know, how cheap can we make stuff? How fast can it get to, to market? We've seen a shift from that to scalable learning, which is how do we make sure that everyone within our organization is learning at the same rate and is learning the same kind of information. And unfortunately, in hierarchical organizations, that, that's quite difficult. It's quite difficult to organize. Oh, I understand. You know, it, it's interesting because you know, one of the things that this section make, made me think of is, well, there's quite a bit that it makes me think of. Everything from people trying to solve, you know, they put out program code and say, hey, try and, try and figure out if you can break this or try and figure out if you can help me get beyond this point or it, even in the gaming world. I mean, it's, and that's what's kind of neat because to me, what I think of is how like in the gaming world, they, they seek for help. <laughs> hey, when you get to the brick wall, how do you not get swallowed up by the creature, you know? And the next thing you know, you got 15 people telling them, well, do this, do that, do the other. And, you know, they have these conversations about, oh, you're nuts. No, the easy solution is. And you see that a lot, you know, just popping up in all kinds of aspects of our world, this, this collaborativeness in helping to solve the problem where, you know, not so long ago, so much of this was not anything that you really had access to. If you got a game, you just, it's your bad luck if you can't figure out how to find the special little vine that goes up somewhere else in the game, you know? It's like, so Exactly. And, and I think uh, the, it, it's interesting that you chose the, the gaming industry because um, one of the organizations that I cite is Valve, who are probably one of the biggest video games developers. 
and they've they've now got this thing where they say to their users, um, here's here's all the development code. This is what we use. We want you now to create your own environments, create your own worlds, and we'll credit you. We'll share it with with the community. And I think what took everyone by surprise when this started to happen, Steve, was that people just wanted recognition. They weren't looking necessarily for monetary reward. They just wanted that recognition of the community. And I think this phenomenon of online forums, it's, it's too easy to take it for granted. You know, in my own life, in terms of health challenges that I've had, it's been phenomenally helpful. And it's just peers who are, who've got a particular amount of knowledge and just want to share it to, to help make the world a better place. I think that's what's so cool. I mean, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on YouTube for a minute because I've gone to YouTube and to the point that my kids always look at me and dad, dad if you say YouTube one more time, you know, I'm going <laughs> to, but it's, you know, like I, I've learned how to fix a cabin air filter. I learned how to replace a taillight. I've learned how to fix a lawnmower. I've, uh, I've learned how to use different online technologies that uh, are available to me in this open source kind of world where there's stuff that's free that I don't care if it has their little logo in it or something like this. I, I have access to it and I can use it. Whereas before I would have had to buy it and figure out how to determine whether I'd even want to plop down, you know, it's luck of the draw, whether I plop down my money on it or not, because I may fail to even progress in it. Well, now I can mess around with it a little bit to see if it's something that I would understand. So, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just like you. I now go to YouTube for, for any kind of, problem if i need something that needs fixing then youtube's my my first source and the big misperception i think was i remember when tony blair was our prime minister and he said you know the growing knowledge economy content is going to be king it's going to be of prime value and that's why we need to invest in education what he got wrong was actually the economic value of of knowledge plummeted people were happy to give away what they knew but the social capital attached to that knowledge soared. And, and I think that's something that still, or some organizations can't quite get their heads around. You know, that to, to, to use Clay Shirky's phrase, it used to be that you, you needed to know what was the value of your knowledge before you'd make it publicly available. Now we do the opposite, and Google are a great example of this. They make that knowledge available so they can learn how valuable it is. Oh, it's, so, it's so awesome because, you know, what we're talking about right now is a, a prime example is what we're doing. I mean, I, the, we're, we're talking, you're in, you're in England, I'm in uh, um, Georgia in the United States, and, uh, and, and even though I, I can't quite figure out the times quite right, I mean, I've, I'm using technology that, uh, that is relatively inexpensive and has only become that way in the last bunch of years, as well as this, I mean, this communication at one time, this was meant for high level, you know, government muckety mucks and in, in military, you know, and here we are um, having a chit chat. So. And, and, the, and the pandemic has really kind of brought that home, you know, because I went from training people in a face to face environment to suddenly thinking, well, I'm going to have to build a TV studio. And, and, and that's effectively what I've got here. You know, it's a very low level one, but we've all, we've all done that. We've all had to do it. It's pretty wild, pretty wild. I know, uh, you know, it's just, not too long ago in the 90s when I was in the, U the Army, the U.S. Army, and they were showing us this technology, the satellite communications technology. And so we were talking um, from 
south into Georgia, we were talking to someone that was in another part of the United States across this satellite time. And here it is. I can do it now. I don't have to have this big giant system that they had at that time. Um, mm -hmm. Here we are doing it with just from a laptop. So yep, it's mind boggling. Yeah. So let's explore this comment. The best leaders model the qualities they wish to see in their people, curiosity, a thirst for learning, psychological safety, moral authority, and transparent vulnerability. Can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So one of the um, people that I interviewed was um, the CEO and chair of WD-40, and I'm sure everyone listening to this knows what WD-40 is. It's a, it's a relatively unassuming household object that absolutely everyone owns. Um, but Gary Ridge is one of the finest educators I've, I've come across. And when you talk to Gary, you realize one of the things he said is the three most important words that any leader needs to, to adopt is, I don't know. And, and he said, there's, there's this macho culture, which is built around leadership, where you can't admit that you don't know anything. And, and it's now impossible to know everything because work has become so complex that you can't know how every element of your organization functions. So that, that idea goes alongside. He also has a, um, a, 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 a kind of phrase that he uses at the bottom of every email, which I think is is um, Ancora Amperia. I, I, pr I probably mangled that Latin up, but it means still I'm learning. And, you know, over the past decade or so, we've seen this shift towards uh, this idea of servant leadership, you know, that the most successful leaders now are not the kind of thrusting, go-getter, ego-driven people, but the people who look after their people. And, and you know, Simon Sinek's written books about this, Eaters Eat Last, Leaders Eat Last. But I, I actually think now that the, the really successful leaders are the ones who, are, who model the learning that they want all their people to 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 adopt in their organization so you know gary took himself off did an ma at um university of southern california he funds anyone now who wants to do an ma um and and they have built this incredible learning culture but it's it's kind of led by himself and and i think going forward these are the kind of leadership models that we that we're going to need because if scalable learning is the thing that's going to be driving innovation then it needs the 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 man or woman at the top to be setting the example and that's so important and it, it's and i love this section of your book when it gets into that so uh, good stuff the uh, uh you know in chapter 11 you have a section that addresses this Ingenuity blooms with the right growing conditions. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm going to throw a German word at you since I've mangled the Latin. <laughs> Maybe I'll mangle some German. There is this um, concept in gardening. I, I'm of an age now where, you know, I, I've gardened most of my life, but there comes a point where, you know, you don't want to keep bending over all the time. So I, I've developed these raised beds uh, in my garden. Um, and there's a concept in, in German called Hugelkultur, which is, um, it, it, it flies in the face of the convention of raised bed gardening, which is normally that you put anything at the bottom of that bed, rubble or, you know, just any, any materials, it doesn't really matter because you're going to pack it with topsoil. What Hugelkultur 
does is to say, take bulky organic matter, put that at the bottom, and then over time that will start to decompose and then feed the kind of growing medium from below. And I, I've, I've tried it for the first year in my own garden and boy, it really works. I've had such success. And, and it, it also removes the need for, you know, fertilizers and bone meal and constantly feeding the soil. Now, how does that apply to, to, to building the right kind of culture? I used to be the equivalent when I led a, 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 about a team of about 100 academics. And I was that person who filtered ideas top down. And it got to the point, I think, where my team would kind of just go, well, there's no point having ideas because he's going to come in and tell us what we're doing next. And so what I was what I was trying to get at is it seems to me now we need to think about what kind of growing medium for innovation can we create? And and that's really what the, the final part of the book is about. I love it. And I love this whole section. And um by the way, not, I don't think you butchered the word. <laughs> <laughs> well, if anybody's listening from Germany, they'll probably have a different view. <laughs> That's all right. We're, we're working together. <laughs> so, um, so let's shift. Let, let's shift to education. Could you talk about this? While there will be a strong urge from educators and policymakers alike to return to life before Corona, we must not let things that you thought you could not do get in the way of permanent change? That's a, a, it's really interesting that you've picked up on that because that's a reference to Rahm Emanuel's famous quote at the end of the, well, in, in the middle of the global financial crisis when he said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Everybody remembers that part of it, but people don't remember the second part, um, which, which you've just um, explained. And I think, what he was trying to say was, this is a chance now for us to do things that we've previously been unable to, to contemplate. And what we've seen in education during this pandemic has, has you know, absolutely at least prepared the ground for a fairly radical transformation. I'm thinking particularly of assessment. You know, in, in, in most of the world, we weren't able to do standardized tests in the traditional way. Um, we had to think of a different way. We had to actually trust teacher judgment. Um, I, I think it would be an awful shame if we went back to, you know, once the pandemic's over, if we went back to saying, okay, we're just going to go back to, you know, timed three-hour examinations. Or if you look at the whole blended learning thing, you know, teachers for years were kind of saying, well, it's okay that all that technology is okay for some teachers, but I'm not that kind of teacher. Well, everybody had to be that kind of teacher. And they did it. They did it in really short order. Um, and I think also it, the, the, the recognition of informal learning. I was actually taking part in something earlier on, and it was someone from UNESCO. And she said, you know, what this pandemic has, has um, shown us is that young people um, are capable of learning beyond school and i thought has it taken a pandemic for us to realize that did we not know that before you know and i feature at the end of the book i feature some of the most amazing young people who are doing incredible things as 
essentially social entrepreneurs or astrologists, kid in Australia who discovered three stars that no one had ever found, NASA had never seen. But, but they did it outside of their school environment. And my challenge to educators is to say, this is a one-off opportunity, you know, and can we, can we seize that moment to say, yes, they've been, it's been a dreadful thing, this pandemic, but actually it's taught us that we, there are things that we can do that we thought we couldn't do before. So let's try and build on that rather than, and I understand it. I absolutely, I hear teachers saying, I just want to go back to normal. And I, I get that, you know, everyone is fatigued by it now. But I, I think we, we can't do that because we've learned so much over this last seven months that we've got to put it to good use. Oh, I know that uh, right off the bat, you know, it's funny because it's like, uh, okay, we're going to try this thing called going virtual. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, the good thing is, is that, you know, you want people to, to experiment, try things and make mistakes and learn from their mistakes. And that's pretty much what the spring was. And then people put the brakes on and said, okay, we need to come back and kind of figure out. We obviously don't know certain things that we need to know. They figured that out. And now it's a lot different, the introduction of that, uh, uh, the pursuit of it. What do you think is one of the best opportunities right now to not pursue? What do you, what do you think, what, what, what's David thinking that would be a great thing for people to say, just run away from that and move towards this? Well, I, I, I should declare an interest because um, I'm a, an advisor to a thing in the US called the Mastery Transcript um, Consortium. And it just so happened, they've been working on this now, collection of schools and colleges, trying to find a better way of summarizing a student's academic, you know, 12 years of school better than, than a GPA. Um, and, and they came up with this transcript, which, you know, looked at all the kind of things that employers have been telling us, things like leadership skills and collaboration and critical thinking. And as, as luck would have it, this year was the, the year that they piloted this, this transcript. And it was meant to run alongside the standard form of assessment. So it's not replacing the grade point average, but it's, it's certainly an alternative. And of course it became the only show in town. Um, and, and, and the interesting thing was the response from the universities was extremely positive about it. So much so that I think it's gonna get scaled up next year and rolled out quicker than they'd, they'd originally intended. I, I just think standardized testing is, is one of those areas. And I know that teachers often feel it's beyond my control. You know, I might not like it. I might find it a blunt instrument, but I actually think that what this pandemic has is, is kind of reminded us all is that teachers can exercise their own judgment and we need to trust in that judgment a little more than we've done. Um, it was it was beautifully put in one of those radio phoning conversations because we had this huge brouhaha in the UK when the exam results came out because they did this incredibly complex algorithm which would effectively moderate down teacher assessments because they said they were being far too generous. And I heard this teacher saying, you know, I, I hear our own government saying that they can't trust our judgment. And she said... I know what my students know 
And, and she said, she cited this example of one student who had gone in and done, we have these mock examinations before you actually come to take it. And he'd done that one of those before the pandemic hit and came out and he was furious. And she said, what's the problem? He said, there was, there was one tiny little question on, on Macbeth. It was an English examination. He said, I know everything about that play. He said, and I wasn't able to show what I know. And she said, I know what, that he knows that. But, but where does that fit in the system? You know, where does the system recognize um, kids like Sophia Leal, who I'll be, I'll be speaking at a conference with, a Colombian kid who's invented this incredible social innovation, which is temporary housing for people who are displaced during natural disasters. Now, fortunately, she did it through her school, but you still wouldn't get recognition for that in the standardized world that we live in and i think that's that's the the big dichotomy now we've got standardized testing for a non-standard world that's so right on the money and you know that's something that i'm really hoping because this is an opportunity right now to really push away from from that model of you know everything's measured by this test that somebody says is good <laughs> you know and uh that doesn't necessarily measure what kids do know or think about or want to think about exactly exactly and i think we've got to use this moment now as an opportunity you know one of the one of the great things that that has happened as a result of lockdown is that parents now know much more about what their kids are learning because they had to but we've also had communities getting involved in learning we've had businesses getting involved and i think collectively they've they're starting to find their voice and teachers on their own won't be able to change the system. But with the parents behind them and with communities and businesses saying, this system doesn't really work for, for, for our needs anymore, then maybe we can affect some change. I like that. Uh, you know, and I, I, think, I think we have, like you said, I think we have a perfect opportunity right now. And, it, they, they, and it, it's so tempting because just to say, because you, know, you hear it all the time, I want to get back to what was. And it's like, well, can we steer you away from the everything the way it was? It may be a new, a new was. <laughs> I don't know. That's terrible grammar. But. The way it was wasn't working for an awful lot of our children. It was working for some, but for an awful lot, the way it was just wasn't working. Right, right on the money. Yeah, we're, we're getting close, close to finishing. One of the things I want to make sure that I, I ask you, David, is, you know, you do a lot of, you, you, do, you know, and eventually we're going to, you, you got this online world that you're dealing with right now. And um, eventually, if you haven't started already, I'm sure you're going to be back in front of uh, audiences uh, in live, in live, like, <laughs> in person. And, uh, you know, tell everyone a little bit about what they can expect from you when they hire you as a speaker or a trainer. Well, I think um, I, I'm a great believer in pragmatic solutions because, you know, um, I, I sometimes get, build as a motivational speaker and I have to say, please, can you take that down? Because like, that's not what I do. You know, I think it's just not enough to do that rah-rah stuff and firing up a crowd. You've got to give them something that they can actually use. And when it comes to education, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate in my life that, you know, once I stopped actually, you know, working nine to five in, in, in schools and colleges, I was able to travel around the world and see great practice. I'm, I'm lucky enough to have led some um, international um, education innovation projects 
So I'm able to share a lot of things that I've picked up from from other places around the world. And and I think that's what teachers need. Um, Because the change that needs to happen is not going to come from governments downwards. It's going to come from people in the classroom, students and teachers and parents, this ecosystem that people are now increasingly talking about. And in order to do that, then they need some practical tools. And, and the same goes for my training. I, I, I'm a big believer in practicing what you preach. So if I believe that the best kind of learning is by doing, then it, I, you know, it would be hypocritical to run webinars, which I've been doing you know, since lockdown, which were just me talking at people. So I try to make sure that people are you know, um, pr- practically engaged as, as much as possible. And I also try to put teachers in the role of their students so that they get to see what it's like to be a student. And my wife and I have just finished delivering a, a webinar series around project-based learning. And we always get teachers to actually do their own project. And it's always that moment where they say, Oh, I get it now. I see what our students have been going through. And I just think, you know, that that is the kind of training that that I want to be associated with. Um, because I just I I think if it's good enough for our students, it's good enough for us. Love it. Love it. I and I so agree with you. That's awesome. So uh you know, if if someone wanted to connect further with you, David, or learn more about the power of us, where would you send them? I'd send them straight to Amazon and they could buy the book. <laughs> nice. But beyond that, um, I, I'm on Twitter. It's David Price OB. And I've got a website, which is davidpriceob.com. The funny thing is, having started this conversation talking about the OBE, people say, what, you joke about having an OBE and yet you stick it in all your handles. I like, have you ever Googled David Price? You get, you know, <laughs> millions. Of, of examples and I couldn't get a URL or a Twitter handle that would that would suffice for my name. So that's when the OB comes in handy. I knew it would come in handy for something. That's beautiful. That's excellent. That's <laughs> that explains a lot too because I can imagine. Yeah, googling David Price. There, there are. That's a that's, yeah popular name. From baseball players to boxers and yeah, I get confused with a lot of people. Nice, nice. So. Very cool. So, David, I have a couple of last questions I'd like to ask you. And one of them goes like this. When things get difficult or there are too many issues all coming at once and you want to quit, how do you overcome those feelings and keep going? Well, I guess for everyone, it's it's different, Steve. And I'm going to have to talk personally, really, at this point, which is... um, Five years ago, I, I, I had colon cancer and I had surgery, which went horribly wrong. When they reconnected the colon, it, it leaked and I had severe septic shock. So I had to have emergency surgery. And, and you know, the, the statistics with sepsis are it's a, it's a toss of the coin. You know, 50% of people don't make it. Um, so my wife uh, saw me in intensive care for, I oh, forget what I was, three weeks or so. And eventually I kind of pulled through and, and, Every time I feel like things are overwhelming, I just have to remember, not, not my experience, but what she went through and what my family went through. You know, I was, I was in morphine land for three weeks. I had no idea what was going on. But, but I saw the kind of pressure that they had. And it just, you know, experiences like that do, I know it's a cliche, but they do give you a sense of perspective. Um, 
And the other thing I realized is um, if, if, we, if we think that we are at the center or, or that if we don't do something, it will never get done, we're kidding ourselves, you know. I, I left an organization that I'd given blood, sweat and tears for, that was the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts. And the moment I left, I just thought, those people are gonna really regret me leaving. And six weeks later, I was like, who was that guy who used to work here? You know, <laughs> so you, you just gotta, I think, keep, keep a sense of perspective about it. Great advice, great advice. Last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Well, yes, I'm going to try and say this without getting too emotional. I actually didn't have a teacher at school. I mean, frankly, I couldn't stand school. I didn't like it at all. And I went to a Roman Catholic grammar school where uh, the reason why I think I can't recite any Latin is because it was beaten into you with this inch wide leather strap. I mean, it was, it was brutal. Anyway, as a result of that, um, I, I, I suppose I, I, I really just wanted to get away from school, never thinking that I'd return to education. And uh, the, the best teacher I guess I had was um, when I was helping to establish the Liverpool Institute. Um, and it was this transdisciplinary degree program um, at, at Paul McCartney's old uh, school, which was, which was being renovated. And we needed someone who could represent all of the art forms. And, and I just knew the only person who could do this was Sir Ken Robinson. And, and at that time, he was just Ken. Um, and he was working at Warwick University and he became our chief external examiner. Um, and and by, by way of doing that, became my chief mentor. And yeah, I mean, as you know, he, he sadly passed away quite recently. I, I have been able to tell him how thankful I was because he taught me how to write. Um, he, he, he encouraged me to write, but he also showed how you could take really complex ideas, but explain them simply so that anyone could understand. And I think that is a great lesson for educators because frankly, we, we too easily slip into insider talk, you know, and I do it. I, you know, I use words like pedagogy and a parent would look at me and think, what are you talking about? What's pedagogy? I have no idea what you're talking about. And, and Ken was able through his books and through his public speaking, Ken was able to, 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 to speak in very plain, simple language with that wonderful sense of humor that he had. Um, and, and yeah, he, he literally changed the course of my life, even though by then, how old would I have been? I was mid forties, but uh, yeah, he changed the, the direction of my life. That is awesome. That's really cool. And I appreciate you sharing. That's, uh, that's neat that you, uh, yeah. A lot of people know the name, that's for sure. And uh, it's really cool that you had a chance to have him make that difference. So thank you so much for sharing, David. And, and David, I, I can't thank you enough for talking with me today. Your ideas and passion for your topic are inspiring. Your book, The Power of Us, How We Connect, Act, and Innovate Together, is thought-provoking and chock-full of ideas for helping organizations transition to this future. It's coming. I uh, wish you the best in all you do. Thanks very much, Steve. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here.
Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.